Woe to the what? Wicked city who obeyed not the what? She received not what? She drew not near to who? Oh, wickedness in that city, yes? But notice the prophecy as it states clearly. The just Lord is in the what? He will not do. But he brings forth his judgment to light every morning. The voice you just heard was David Koresh, leader of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. Today's topic might seem a little out of place. Okay, after all, this is a podcast on mental health, right? It's emotional health. That's what we're after. Well, there are a couple of different ways to approach the topic of mental health, both as a clinician and as a podcaster. Okay, there's proactive and reactive. The proactive approach is mostly concerned with information and preparation. So that's when I'm sharing knowledge, I'm sharing my own experience, I'm sharing facts with you to give you what I hope is a beneficial bit of content as you live your lives throughout the week, okay? In therapy, this is called psychoeducation. This would be episodes like why you need boundaries or connect the dots, okay? It's not really addressing anything specific. It's more, this is a way that mental health professionals would work with you in therapy or would work through a specific issue in therapy, Here's some information on that, okay? That's the proactive approach. The reactive approach is concerned more with protection and correction, okay? That's when I'm sharing information to set right what's unfolding in our society, in the world. It's unfolding around us, and it's not conducive to mental health. So I'm noticing what's happening around us in the world. I'm a pretty observant student of world affairs and dynamics and how the zeitgeist is unfolding, if you're familiar with that phrase. And so the reactive approach is I'm addressing those specific things and helping us back to the path in mental health. So in therapy, that's called providing a corrective emotional experience for the client or even reparenting the client. It means something is going on or has gone wrong as it relates to mental health. It's my job to step in, intervene, and serve as a voice. And again, just pointing the way back to mental and emotional thriving, okay? Today's episode is a reactive episode. Why am I doing a podcast about cults and cultish thinking? Well, because what I'm noticing and hearing from clients in session and what I'm seeing in the news and what I'm just feeling all around me in different relationships is an increased polarization of our society, our societies at large. And what that signals is that we're moving into diametrically opposed polarities, okay? We are seeing splits in family systems like we've never seen before. And there are a lot of issues that I'm going to stay out of today. I want to talk about this very broadly because cultish thinking can apply to almost every part of our lives. But we saw splits in family systems over the last two years that we've never seen before in history, And what does that mean from a mental and emotional health perspective? It means it's destabilizing the core structural and support systems of our society. This is not a small thing. So people in general and most vulnerable children and teens are looking to strangers on the internet to shepherd them and guide them before their own parents. Now, everyone has done this. You know, in the last two years, I was sort of joking with someone about it not too long ago that we all went from having whatever careers we had to being, you know, amateur experts in virology and constitutional law. (laughs) I mean, it just, it devolved quickly, didn't it, in the COVID times? But what we've also seen is a split in the family system along political ideologies, gender ideologies, sexual orientational ideologies, religious ideologies, like all of these ideas, we're just splintering. 
And the group that has been typically the most vulnerable have been the kids. The kids, children, teens. And like I said, they're looking to people on the internet, influencers on TikTok, influencers on Instagram. And they're looking to these people to give them information about themselves and their lives before their own parents. Now, in all fairness, not all parents are up to the task of shepherding a child or a teen through an emotional or ideological firestorm. They're just not up to it. And what I've seen in therapy and what I've observed in the world is some parents just won't make the time. They're not going to get deeply involved. Some parents aren't informing themselves on the issues for whatever reason. They don't want to deal with it. There's too much cognitive dissonance. They're not interested in the issue, whatever it is, but they're not informing themselves. And you cannot speak with authority to someone when you have no knowledge on it. They won't listen to you. Some parents just want their families to be happy. This is sort of the ostrich in the sand path where they just want to be happy, happy places where everything is easy. We all love each other and get along. Why can't we all get along? So they don't engage the complexity. Their strategy against those difficult emotions is just avoidance. It'll go away. And the problem is it's not going away. And I think some parents just feel overwhelmed by the children's issues. Like in cases of addiction, it's really, really hard to know what to do. We've tried tough love. We've tried support. We've tried treatment centers. We've tried like, what do we do? There's only so much they can do, right? So for many reasons, parents are disengaging. Some parents are engaging with more fervor than they ever have before in an effort to save their families. But what we're seeing is a breakdown of the family system on on a level that I don't think nationally or internationally we've ever seen before. Children are outright at this time being told not to trust their parents. And I am not going to get into this a lot today. Hardly at all. I'll just say this. I am a firm believer that my field at this point, the field of mental health, is doing more harm than good. We have mental health professionals coming between parents and children. That is necessary if children are being abused. It is. I'm a mandated reporter and also as a human being, I will not stand by and let a child be abused by their parent, not for a second, not for a minute. But we also have therapists, teachers, influencers, whoever they are, ideologically coming between parents and children and disrupting that relationship. Children are being told outright not to trust their parents. And my belief is that the people doing that truly believe they're doing what's in the best interest of that kid. I have to believe that. I can't believe that people are sinister and malicious. Maybe that's my own cognitive dissonance. But by and large, I really think people are participating in this divisive voice that they have in society right now because they believe that's what the kids need. But children are being told outright, you can't trust your parents, they don't get it. And now we have this obnoxious and repelling term like boomer. We've all heard this. I think it means baby boomers, like the people that are now in their 60s and 70s. And we're addressing and dismissing members of older generations. Now, you may be thinking, gee, Vanessa, we didn't know you were that traditional. Folks, this isn't about being traditional or not. There is a plethora of scientific, sociological, and psychological research that shows that an intact family unit is the foundation for a solid childhood. You go find me the article that says that kids from broken homes, kids where the parent-child relationship is disrupted, you go show me those studies that, that will prove that that is an ideal way for a kid to live. The cohesive unit of a multi-generational family system has been the foundation for childhood development for millennia. And today we're watching that it's, it's diminishing in practice and importance. And I'll get back to how this connects with cultish thinking in a minute. Because I have to say a little bit about this. Families are imperfect. My family was imperfect. However, most families 
while imperfect, are the stabilizing entity for babies and children and teens to grow up into adults. It's even noted as a privilege to have been raised in a two-parent household. It is known, it's literally documented socially, psychologically, in research studies as one of the greatest advantages we can have in early life is coming from an intact family unit, imperfect and all. So this divide is developing between parents and kids. Technology plays a huge part. The divide between humans, just men and women, people, is deepening based on party lines, race lines, gender lines, or your preferred cause of the hour lines, whatever circle you have around your Facebook page, your face on Facebook, whatever circle you currently have, the lines are drawn. And the circle you put around your face is your side of the line, right? We're dividing along geographic regions. Any other difference you can name, we're dividing along more lines than I can count right now. And differences between us are now reasons for disunity instead of perceiving them as crucial to our society at large and worthy of celebration. I know I sound a little bit like a Pollyanna right now, like overly idealistic, but friends, this is, we're disintegrating. And mental health experts, experts, I use the term and I laugh, mental health professionals are doing nothing to help. In many cases, we're instigating it. We're cheering it on, this divide. None of this is conducive to mental and emotional health. None of it. Breaking off into factions of an ideological war is increasing our stress, it's making us hypervigilant, and we're isolated from each other, and we're living in an isolated sense of self instead of the safety and comfort of healthy community and belonging. We're now insisting that people agree with us, or we will not associate with them. Are you starting to understand why I'm doing a podcast today on cults? (laughs) Do I need to say that again? Listen to me. We either insist that people agree with us or we disown them. Hello? Sounds pretty cultish. And mental health is losing its way. And like I said, I will eventually do an episode. It's probably not too far away from today. But I'm going to do an episode soon on how and why this field is harming more than it's helping. I am convinced it is harming more than it's helping at this point. But today, I'm just going to say this. Mental health is losing its way as a field. Why? Because as a field, we are now replacing our connection to reality with an overemphasis on emotions. We are living in the era of I feel, therefore it is. Okay, the Cartesian era was I think, therefore I am. We are now living in this post-Cartesian era of the glorification of personal emotions. I feel and therefore it is true. Now, look, you know me. You've heard my podcast. You know how I feel about emotions. We need to feel they're part of us. We need to express what we feel. We need to know it and experience it. We need our feelings heard. We need them validated. And we need to understand that our feelings arise out of our perceptions And our perceptions are not always congruent with reality. I think I've told you this story. I was living in Europe. I was on tour with West Side Story, and we had a secret Santa. Some of you have heard me say this. I think I said this on this podcast. When we had a secret Santa, and we did the 12 days of Christmas, and whoever pulled my name from the hat, and it was this guy named Dan. But anyway, he pulled my name out of the hat, and everybody's getting these little presents for Christmas. They're all getting these little tiny tokens of affection and friendship as we're, you know, miles and miles away from our families and home over the holidays. And I'm not getting anything. 
days after days, I'm not getting anything. So I start to perceive that I'm not loved. I'm not liked. I don't belong. What's wrong? I'm like, my secret Santa sucks. I mean, I was just not happy about it. Okay. And then finally on the 12th day of Christmas, he gave me a beautiful pair of earrings and I still have them. They're garnet earrings. They're beautiful. And the reason he got me the one gift is because he couldn't afford to get me those and all the 12 days of Christmas. So my perception was that I was unloved and the truth was I was so loved. I was loved in a higher way than I even realized. Okay, that's an example of perception and emotion. My perceptions were driving my feelings of being unliked, unloved, unknown, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so sometimes perceptions need to be cleared up. So we can hold our emotions and we can know, okay, this is what I feel. That's in one hand. And what's in the other hand is the understanding that our emotions are not always based on facts. They're based on perceptions and perceptions can be wrong. Okay. They're not based on reality or objective truth. Now, what's an example from therapy? What's an example in mental health? Well, what if I have a client who tells me they feel like they want to die? That's a real feeling. They feel worthless. They feel hopeless. They feel dead already. Is this true? No, these are feelings. And feelings pass once they're processed. Now, should I validate this person's pain? Absolutely. Should I agree with their perception of reality? No, I can't. I cannot agree that they are worthless and hopeless. Not if I'm going to help them through it. And I just can't agree with that because I don't think it's true. Right? So we can't live in a world where therapists are in this role of, well, whatever you feel is true. That can't be true. That cannot be the way we practice. And yet the field of mental health is falling into a pit of emotional validation to the point where we are validating other people's objective reality through the lens of their own emotions. And it's a disaster. If you feel it, it must be true. No. If you feel it, that's valid. Tell me why. Tell me what's creating this, this emotion. What's your perception on this situation that's creating the emotion that you're in? Because if we live by this, if you feel it, it must be true. This is wreaking havoc on mental and emotional health. People are more confused than ever before. Why? Because objective reality is not lining up with their perceived reality, but they're being encouraged to build their life around perceived reality instead of objective reality. If I built my friendship with Dan on my perceived reality that he'd forgotten about me for Christmas, I would have cursed him and rejected him right then. But that was only my perception. It wasn't informed. So we're confused. We used to work through our anxieties and our fears like they were unwelcome intruders, like I have anxiety. And we would work through the anxiety. What is the anxiety telling you? What is this coming from? How long have you been feeling it? What do you think you're afraid of? Anxiety is often fear. It could be repressed anger. What's going on? You dig in and you explore. Nowadays, our anxieties are literally being used as a guiding arrow to what we should believe and therefore have a better life. Well, if I feel it, it must be true. And since it's true, I should live it. And this will make me happy. Folks, this is insane. This is insane. This is not mentally sound. And I hope that as you're listening to this podcast, you're going, huh, well, yeah, That doesn't sound right. It's not true. We can't just believe what we feel. We can't believe that our perception of a situation is the do-all, end-all of the whole thing. It's not. Your feelings are not your facts. My feelings are not facts. They're emotions. They are the body's reactions to the environment we perceive we are in. 
This is why virtual reality is so attractive because you put this little weird helmet on and everything around you is as you want it to be. And what does that do? It gives you an emotional experience. Why? Because that's your perception and your emotions follow that. And then you take the helmet off and we're going to talk about how to get out of cultish thinking. You take the helmet off and you have to deal with the real world. So my question for us today is what helmets are we wearing? What have we put over our heads to try and convince ourselves that life is as we think it should be or as we think we need it to be so that we will only feel what we want to feel? Because that's not reality. We are literally creating, in danger of creating our reality with what we believe, and that's setting our emotions in motion, and none of this might be connected to actual reality. So this is where cults come in. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about cults and cultish thinking, because without realizing it, we can fall into cult-like thinking, which is removal from reality, all for the sake of emotional soothing. Now, most people think a cult has to be religious in nature. It's got to have a God figure to be a real cult. Not true. Any group that fits the characteristics of a cult is a cult. The worship of God or the, a divine being at the head of the... No, it's not necessary. A cult is a cult if it acts like a cult. All right, let's dive in. Now, a little bit about me, personal story. I grew up in New Jersey and the youngest of four kids and my parents were married until my mom died. Very stable family unit. And I grew up in a church called the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I'm not going to say much about the church except my perception of it as a child. Okay, I have not stayed in that church, so I don't have an adult perspective on it. I can't speak to it from, you know, the, the lens of a mature adult because I haven't been in it since I was about 17. So I'm going to talk about what it was like for me as a kid, what my perception of it, okay, there's that word, was as a child. And it was rules. Rules and rules and more rules. It's Seventh-day Adventist, so we grew up worshiping on the seventh day, the Sabbath, so we could not go out on Friday nights from sundown to sundown. Friday to Saturday, we observed the Sabbath. We ate almost completely kosher. I had no pork, no bacon, no shellfish, no shrimp, no lobster, nothing until I got to adulthood. I grew up without eating any of that. It was part of my religion. You had to wear a dress to church. We were never allowed to wear pants to church, never. No makeup or minimal makeup. In fact, my sister got rebuked once for wearing red lipstick to church. Most Adventists are vegetarians. I think that's probably still true to this day. We weren't, but many are. So it was a lot of rules. Like you have to eat this, dress this way, wear this, go to this, don't go to this. Okay. And then there were the beliefs. Adventism is fundamentalist by and large. Fundamentalists believe that the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God. Okay. There's infallible. Every single word is true. And Adventists believe that we're living in the end times and they're waiting for the second coming of Christ. So there's a sense of urgency in the church. I remember growing up and going to these things called revelation seminars where, um, gosh, what was the name of that evangelist? Rick something. Anyway, he was super charismatic. Um, and he, he always used to say, dear folk, like when he was addressing the church, dear folk. Oh, what was his name? Anyway. But they would talk about the book of Revelation and Daniel, and they would interpret all these prophecies in the Bible. And, you know, we're living in the end times and the seven seals. And, you know, they talked about the number 666 and the mark of the beast. And in the Adventist church, again, this is what I remember. I think this is probably still what their doctrine is. But the beast is the Catholic church. And the mark of the beast is Sunday worship. So ask yourself, okay, I grew up in New Jersey where everybody is Italian or Irish. (laughs) 
all of my friends in high school, their name either ended in a vowel, meaning Italian, or they started with Mick. Okay? Lots of Italians and Irish, lots of immigrants from Europe. What does that mean? Lots of Catholics. So I go to school and I'm looking at all my little friends that I love who are Catholics who go to mass on Sundays and I'm inviting them to church with me. I'm like, you have to come to church with me. You have to, why? Because that's the mark of the beast. I mean, you're 12 years old, but you're getting confirmed in the Catholic church. You're going to go to hell. Okay. This is what I was raised believing. Okay. So I would try and bring all my Catholic friends to church with me because I was trying to save their souls. The other thing about the Adventist church is that the Adventist church believed that it was the remnant, that the seventh day was the Sabbath and that people who did not worship on the seventh day were going to go to hell because, again, Sunday worship was the mark of the beast. That's the mark of the people who are going to hell. Okay, so I was raised to believe that we were set apart. We were the truth knowers. Okay, only us. It was like we we were in this small society that cornered the market on truth. So I, I grow up in this and I go to college and my freshman year, I didn't really go to church. Maybe I went like a couple of times, but I couldn't, the Adventist church I went to was weird. I didn't like it. It was like in a weird part of town. I don't know. It didn't click. So I kind of partied my freshman year. You know, there was this bar on campus, Papalini's, and that bar served everyone underage. I mean, the thought that you had to be carded was a joke. We had 17, 18, 19 year olds in there just getting plowed every weekend. So I'm partying. It's my first year in New York. Then I go away for the summer and I worked in Walt Disney World, completely different podcast. Ask me what it's like to play Pluto. Anyway, so I come back my sophomore year and like my first night back at school, I move into my dorm and I don't know where my dorm mates were. They all went out, I guess. But I went to this bar across the park. We lived on Union Square Park and I went to this bar across the park called Shades of Green and I got so drunk. I think I threw up in the park on the way home. It was literally across the park. My dorm was on Union Square West and Shades of Green was practically on Union Square East. It's like one one little trip across a small park in New York. And I think I puked on the way home. And then I definitely puked when I got back to my dorm room. So I'm feeling pretty bad about myself. Okay, I'm puking red wine. Pretty graphic. Disgusting. Okay, and I felt extremely guilty. Why? Because I'd lost my virginity the summer before when I was living in Florida. So I'm, I'm like breaking all the rules. I'm partying. I don't think I was rebelling. I was kind of reaching out for something, okay? And I got swept off my feet in Florida and that happened. And so I've got a lot of guilt at this point and shame. So what happens? My roommate comes home and she says, I met these girls. They're starting a campus ministry and they want us to be a part of it. Sure. So I go to this thing called a Bible talk. And there's all these pretty girls and they're all blondes and they're actually all from Tennessee. Well, yeah, all one was from Georgia. The rest were from Tennessee and they're pretty and they're chirpy and they're well-dressed and they look cute and they're, you know, looking for quote unquote leaders. So immediately my ego's perked. I'm like, oh, well, I want to be a leader. Okay. So I'm getting a sense of belonging and they did all the things, all the love bombing and let's go here and let's go there. Let's go shopping. Let's put on makeup. Let's go to this event. Let's go through Central Park. I mean, we're just living it up with these girls. And so they start studying the Bible with me and they've got this upbeat change the world message that we're going to change the world and it's going to start on college campuses. And this kind of cultish thinking is very common. We're going to get into this. It's always laced with a global sense of catastrophe, but the cult is the solution or the cultish ideology is the solution. Okay. So it lured me in. Okay. Now people have asked me, Vanessa, you are such an independent thinker. How did you get lured into this thing? It's a good question. First of all, I wasn't always an independent thinker. 
Not at all. I'm the youngest child. I'm a people pleaser by nature. I severely want love and acceptance and approval. I mean, that's where my ego goes. It's like, I can do that for you if you'll love me. Okay, so that's actually my truer nature. I have learned to be strong. I've learned to be independent. I've learned to be skeptical in a healthy way. But what lured me in? First, familiarity. Okay, this group was already operating within principles I was familiar with. Fundamentalist religion, the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God, there are rules and expectations you have to follow, okay? Friendship, love bombing, inclusion, um, you know, we're the ones who get it. We're the community that's awake, okay? And then feelings. Because I was already riddled with guilt, shame, and fear. And the church was the antidote. So I stayed in this church for six years and then I left and that's a completely different story. But it was extremely devastating for me from a mental and emotional health perspective. All of the things that you would imagine in a cult, the shaming, the abuse, gosh, the things that were said to me when I look back are just absolutely horrifying. I cannot imagine looking at a young woman, 20 years old and saying the things that I've heard, putting me down, um, just character assassination. It went on for six years and then I left. But I did join it. And I did think that they had the answer. Why? Because it was familiar. It was inclusive, meaning they offered friendship. And my feelings were involved. I was afraid if I didn't join, I'd go to hell. I was afraid of losing my new friends. If I didn't join, they would reject me. I was ashamed of myself because of what I'd done. And I was terribly guilty because of the summer I had beforehand. Okay? Now, I look at my family history very briefly. My parents were in Amway. My mom and dad have always been, they're very optimistic people. Both of them, my mom was and my dad still is. They're like believers in the good. They see the silver lining. They're both very resilient. And they had a lot of pain in their lives that they hadn't dealt with. So what does that do? It leaves you susceptible to ideologies that promise that they're going to take your pain away. So they joined Amway. They joined the Adventist church. I'm not saying that the church is a cult, but it does operate somewhat like that. But they're susceptible to it. Why? Because there's untouched pain. And when you don't touch your pain, when you don't know where your wounds are and how they're playing out in your life, you will be susceptible to anyone who promises you a better path. So it's not unlikely that I would have gravitated toward that church, that cult. It's a shame. I hate that it happened, but I don't hate what I learned about God and about spirituality from it. So let's jump ahead now and talk about the qualities of cults. Okay. What makes a cult a cult? or a cultish ideology, cultish, okay? It's a group that conforms itself to a fanatical ideology. It's usually, they love the word, radical. The cult will always claim to be the only truth, the ones who know. They're on the inside. They're the awakened. Recently, we've heard the word woke a lot. That ideology has a lot of cultish aspects to it. I can get into that, but I don't need to. I think we all see that. They're the hope for the world. If only everyone would be like us, it would be a better world. They're the answer to the world's ills. They're the truth tellers. They're on the inside. They're in the know. Okay. There are usually charismatic leaders or a leader. In a church religious type of cult, there is typically one charismatic leader and then they all have followers and underlings. Right now, I would say influencers in terms of ideological cultish thinking, influencers, YouTube you know, stars. And what do the leaders require? Total belief, total trust. 
If you don't trust me over your own self, over your own mind, you're wrong and you're going to be in danger of the catastrophic event. There's always a catastrophic event right over the horizon if you don't get in line with the cultish ideology. Now, the leaders have no accountability. They can't be held accountable. If you attack the leader, you get silenced, canceled is a recent term we've come up with, challenged, destroyed. You get bullied if you challenge the leader. Contradictions could be present between one teaching of the leader and another. They could be present between what they teach and how they live. The group might be engaged, the leader could be engaged in immoral or illegal things. But the group will turn a blind eye, defend the leader, protect the leader. Why? Why? This is so important. Because they are protecting themselves. They are protecting themselves. They need this to be true. Remember the emotional component here. What predisposes you to being in a cult? And I'm going to talk about this more in a little bit. But the biggest predisposition is pain. The cult has the answer. The pain of the world, the cult has the answer. The cultish ideology has the answer. The pain in you, the ideology has the answer. So I need this to be true. Because without this cult, I have to feel all of those terrible, unpleasant feelings. Without this ideology, I can't face reality. I got to keep my virtual reality helmet on. I can't take it off. I need the world to look the way it does in this helmet. Qualities of cults, there's conformity and control. You must accept every teaching, every bit of instruction, every directive. There's no such thing as developing trust over time. No, you have to be in, you have to agree, you have to accept, you have to apply it from the outset, you're in. Now, there may be a ramp up. Okay, you're given time to become convinced. There is no ramp out. You cannot leave easily. You'll be shunned, disgraced, canceled. There's no such thing as agreeing and disagreeing, meaning, well, I accept these parts, but I don't really accept these parts of this ideology. No, no, no. In a, in a cultish mindset, in a cultish ideology, you have to accept all of it. What do we call that? Groupthink. I think George Orwell coined that phrase in 1984, groupthink. There's a strong opposition to independent thought, and there are terrible consequences for presenting a different experience or perspective. And by terrible, I mean complete ostracization, alienation, rejection, careers are ruined, people are ruined, reputations are dismantled and devastated if you don't conform to the groupthink. There's an us versus them mentality. What does that mean? There's an unreasonable fear or like a malicious contempt of people who are not in the in-think. They're not in the group. They don't hold the same beliefs. They're the enemy. They're what's wrong. They're the danger. They're what's ruining society. Us versus them. Is this starting to sound familiar, friends? This is like literally the America and the world we're living in right now. This is why I'm doing this podcast today. We're slipping into cultish ideology. Division is the name of the game. And what does the ideology do? It distances you from family members who do not adhere to the ideology that is to be expected. They're not invited to weddings. You're not invited to holidays. You're out. If you don't follow the party line, you're out. Why? Because one of the defining characteristics of a cult is isolation. They can't tolerate a challenge to the narrative. They won't. The narrative is all important. 
What they tell members is that dissenting views are a threat to their own safety. Think about how insidious that is. If anyone disagrees with us, you're unsafe. Okay, if you've already bought in 50%, you're going to buy in more. Okay, well, I can't listen to family members or people who love me or who have always loved me because, you know, if, if I... If I, if I do, then I'm not safe. The catastro- Again, the catastrophic event, if it's a cultish ideology or a cult, there's always a catastrophic event looming off in the horizon that you have to be afraid of. And if you dissent, if you defect, or even if you allow dissension in your world, meaning family members who disagree with you, you are part of the problem and you are bringing on the catastrophic event. This is ideological manipulation of the highest order. None of it has to do with reality, by the way. Mind-altering practices. What does that mean? It means they change the way you think about your environment through practices. There's the use of props, objects. They're items of ritual, okay? And they're utilized to create cohesion and conformity within the group. We all dress the same way. We all cut our hair the same way. We all shop at the same stores. We all have the same look. Have you noticed that? Different ideologies, they all have the same look. And you really can't be part of that cultish ideology if you don't get the look. You got to do the things. You have to cut your hair the way that, you know, the cult wants you to cut your hair. Get the right tattoos. Wear flannel. Wear this. Whatever it is. Okay? It's literally mind-altering practices meant to secure your cohesion and conformity in the group. Questioning the need for these things results in attack and possible alienation. In other words, if you were to say, no, I don't really want to dress like that, or I don't really, no, that's like not my style. Well, then you can't be part of the group. It gets that crazy. Now let's talk a little bit about the catastrophic event. If everyone doesn't conform, death, suicide, hell, devastation, catastrophe, the end of the world. There's always that layer. Now, what does that do? It instills fear. Do you want to be cult proof? Don't be afraid. If you do not have fear, you are not susceptible to these groups. You are not susceptible to this ideology and you will not be susceptible to any kind of political, social, whatever it is, ideology that feeds on fear. Now, how do people fall prey to this? How do smart people fall prey to cultish thinking? Typically, they're very idealistic and optimistic by nature. And I know that personally, that was true of me. And it was true of all of my friends that got involved in this crazy cult church in college. We were idealists. We wanted to change the world. We believed that we could. Is there anything more beautiful than young people who believe that their lives matter? I mean, it's, it's the stuff of growing up. It's the stuff of finding your place in the world. It's beautiful. Frankly, I wish I'd done that outside of a cult, but the lessons, I guess, made it worth it. But they're idealistic people. They're optimistic. They want to be part of changing the world. They envision a better society and they want to be part of building it. What does that mean? It means that reality is usually intolerable or undesirable. And this is the important piece. The people that are attracted to cult-like thinking are vulnerable. They're in pain, they're in need of community, they're in need of comfort, and they're desperately in need of a sense of accepting and belonging. There is usually a wound in people who come from families where they experienced rejection, invalidation, that's a big one. That is setting someone up to be a member of a cult or a cultish ideology. 
Why? Because the group, the cult group, whether it's an ideology or an actual cult, they are now the entity saying, we understand your pain. We're on your side. Once people get aligned emotionally, that's the end of the story. From an emotional perspective, understanding the way human beings operate socially, emotionally, once people get aligned with your pain and they believe not only that they have the cure for it, but most importantly, that they feel it. What are they saying? I feel your pain. What is that? Empathy. That's how powerful empathy is. It can literally turn the tide of your whole life into an ideology that may or may not be true or may or may not be healthy. But if you have someone who's identifying with your pain and saying, I feel your pain, and therefore I am qualified to address the panacea, meaning the cure, that's how people get into cults. So what's the process of indoctrination? First, there's interest. That means curiosity, openness, and you're ingesting information. Okay, you're learning, you're taking it in. Who are these people? What's this group? Then, and this is a very important part, the identification of pain. Okay, I call this the pharmaceutical phenomenon. For years and years in the 60s and 70s, the pharmaceutical industry around mental health issues would say, here's the disease, now we have the cure. These diseases were not defined first by the mental health community, by psychiatrists, psychologists, they weren't. They were actually defined mostly by the pharma community in concert with the mental health community. Here's the disease, and what do you know? Here's a pill. Okay, it's the pharmaceutical phenomenon. Here's where you hurt. Here's the name for it. Here's the identification of your pain and what do you know? Here's the cure. You may not know this, but you're in terrible danger of blah, blah, blah. We, you know, you see these on commercials all the time. We're just so used to hearing it. You may have, you know, toxic chemicals in your water. What are you selling? A water filtration system. Do you see? This is how we are manipulated. It is always through fear. There may be something in your environment that's going to kill you. And what do you know? I know what it is and I know how to avoid it. This is the psychological breakdown of manipulation. This is the second part of indoctrination, the identification of pain. Well, hey, I never realized this was a disease or I never realized I was in such danger. I'm so glad you have the answer. Now, this means that the relationship with pain in your life is get rid of it. Now, I'm going to get one layer down here because the first layer is Oh, these nice people, they care about me. They care about my pain. They just want to keep me safe and happy. They just want me to be safe and happy and be my real self and safe and happy in my world. Okay. Well, this is what your pain is. And we feel your pain and we know your pain. And because we know and understand your pain and we can feel your pain, we're the people who should address your pain. Not these other people who don't understand your pain. We address your pain because we understand your pain. And we're making the assumption that you are the kind of person who wants to get rid of pain. Be done with it. But Vanessa, doesn't everyone want to get rid of pain? Kinda, yes. But what's the process? Do you want to get rid of your pain or do you want to understand it? What is your relationship with pain? Because if your relationship with pain is just get rid of it and not understand it, you are susceptible to cultish ideologies because you will listen to anyone who promises you this is the path to get rid of it. But if your process is, no, I want to understand it, you're not terribly susceptible In other words, you're saying pain is part of life and I don't fear pain. Not as much as you do, evidently. I'm okay with it. I'm going to learn from it. No, no, no. The cult has the answer. The cultish ideology has the answer. It's not a path of discovery. It's not about discovery, testing, debating, inquiry, disagreement, growth. No, no, no. It's not that. It's two parts. You have pain. 
I have the answer. And if you admit you're in pain, you have to admit that this is the answer. Pain is not seen as a part of life, a necessary part of life. It's viewed as a failure to live life the right way. Because if you were in this ideology, you'd be living the right way. Remember, it's us and them. It's dichotomous thinking, black and white thinking. We have the right answer. They're wrong. Okay? So if you have pain, we have the answer. Pain must be eliminated at all costs. Remember, this is the big selling point with any kind of cultish ideology, the elimination of pain. Not understanding it, not transforming it, eliminating it. Then we move into from interest, identification of pain, to assimilation and alignment. This is a process where you're starting to move what you think into alignment with what they think. You're accepting information through either reason or rationalization. If it's reason, it means that the information makes sense. Now, that's not a bad thing. There are usually elements of truth in every ideology out there. I've rarely come across an ideology where I'm like, wow, that is 100% hogwash. That's rubbish. No, there's always elements of truth. That's what pulls you in. But then there's rationalization. And this conflicts with common sense. These are the stories you have to tell yourself to go with it. The rationales are almost never congruent with reality, but they have one purpose. And what is that purpose, Vanessa? That purpose is to soothe your painful emotions. You will tell yourself anything to get out of painful emotions if your relationship with pain is eliminated. Conformity. The next step. The bond is established between the person in pain and the person or the group or the entity who's going to take it all away. Friends, this is how cults work, and this is how cultish ideologies work. If you just do this, your pain will go away. What? I got to keep this clean. (laughs) I don't want to lose my clean rating on, on Apple Podcasts. But what male cow excrement is that? If you do this, your pain will go away. If you follow these precepts, you won't be in danger of the catastrophic event. That is male cow excrement. How's that for a euphemism? So conformity, the bond, there's a bond is established between the individual in pain and the ideology who's going to take it all away. Now we have emotional tentacles. Then the collapse of the individual. The individual is now part of groupthink. Defenses have been worn down. Family support systems, they've all been successfully removed. You are fully indoctrinated into the ideology. How do we combat this? Well, first we'll talk about ourselves. How do we combat cultish thinking in ourselves? Wait, Vanessa, hang on a second. I'm interested in this. This is sort of interesting. I'm following along, but I'm not in any kind of cultish ideology. Hang on. You might be. You might be. Let's talk a little bit about dogma. Because even sound ideas, good, healthy ideologies can become cultish. You've all seen these people. They go from, you know, I think I'm going to buy a bicycle. You know, it's good exercise. To, I have to get up at four o'clock in the morning because, you know, I have to meet these people and we're all going biking and I got to get the right shoes. Remember, there's props that you have to get. I got to get the right shoes and I have to eat the certain way and go to bed at a certain time. Why? Because now emotionally, this group is solving my problems. I have belonging. I have identity with the group. This is the answer to my pain. It's the endorphins. I've been waiting for this my whole, do you see, it, it can slip Friends, it can slip so easily there, it's unbelievable. There's fear of being alone. There's fear. Well, you know, I mean, this is the healthiest exercise for you. I mean, you know, you have a heart condition, you can get a heart attack. If you don't do cardio, blah, blah. See, 
I'm just using one little silly example, but anything can become this way. And I won't even get into the spiritual reasons for this. The very short answer is we're actually made to worship. We are made to worship something. We seek out that which is larger than us. It can be any ideology. It could be atheism. You could be cultish about being an atheist. I mean, anything can become a cultish ideology. So you're sitting there telling yourself, no, Vanessa, cults, stupid people join cults. Vulnerable, susceptible people who can be easily manipulated are the kind of people that join cults. Not me. Well, did you know that research shows that 60% of people who join cults have higher degrees? (laughs) 60%. But Vanessa, what, what, I truly believe things. I mean, I truly believe things. Does that mean I'm in a cult? Well, let's talk about that. Dogma. What is dogma? Principles laid down by any authority that are incontrovertibly true. That's what dogma is. That's if you have dogma, you believe this is true and it's incontrovertible and it can't be argued. Now, some of you will say, but there are things that I believe that about that are incontrovertibly true and I believe them. That's okay. What makes it dangerous is when you can't question them. That's what makes a cult a cult. That's what makes a cultish ideology a cultish ideology. It cannot be questioned. You have to obey the leader. You have to take whatever they say into your brain and make it true. But, it, but it's contradicting. No, 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 no. But the leader said it. And we trust that leader. Ugh, I'm holding my tongue back from talking about some of the issues that I'm thinking about. But you just apply this to your life where you need to, okay? What makes a cult a cult is not the beliefs. It is the fact that you have to conform to them, often against your reason. Dogmatic beliefs are not necessarily wrong if you've become convinced. Now, it is not mentally healthy, nor is it humane, to try and coerce others into believing as you do. Whatever you believe in your life, if you've come to those beliefs by a path of integrity, questioning, you've arrived, you're convinced that you have this belief, that's fine. But you don't get to coerce other people into that place of being convinced. They didn't go through your process. Everybody is allowed to engage their own process. That is not cultish. Cultism, cultish ideology says this is true and it must be true for all of you. Now, you don't get a process. It is not mentally healthy to not give yourself a permission to be in the process. If you are finding yourself that, well, I can't question that. I'm not allowed to question the obvious contradictions here. I'm not allowed to question and be skeptical of this person. Well, given their history, have they always been trustworthy? What do opposition voices say about, no, 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 you can't question that if you're in a cultish ideology. You just take what they say and you're, you, you, yes, you, you're silencing dissension. You're silencing people who don't think like you do. You're not open. You're not listening. You are protecting the narrative. So I know you're sitting out there listening, you're in your car, you're making dinner, you're on the elliptical, whatever it is you're doing. No, 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 Vanessa. I don't think, I don't think ideologically like that. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not cultish in my ideology. Well, can you tolerate dissent? Can you disagree with people without losing respect for them and putting them in an opposite group? Ask yourself, what am I dogmatic about? Have I rigorously questioned and researched this? Are others able to question this with no negative consequences? Why do I believe this? How does this belief serve me? Be honest about the discrepancies you've noticed but not acknowledged. There are very, very few systems of thought that have no contradictions. And I won't even get into that, but there are very few, okay? Everything around us today is fraught with contradictions. Do you allow yourself to see them? 
Where do your quote unquote facts contradict themselves? Ask yourself why you cling to these beliefs and these ideologies despite evidence against them. Do you disparage and dismiss dissenting voices? If you do, you are not after truth. You are protecting the narrative. That is cultish ideology. Sometimes we have to be accepting of the potential that we've been lulled into a cultish way of thinking. Not a cult per se, but a cultish way of thinking, a cultish ideology. Does it war against common sense? And you have to accept, we all have to accept that even smart people can fall for this. Again, we think only stupid people are in cults, those who are easily manipulated. No, no. Very smart people can be lulled into this kind of ideology. Why? Because it's not about intelligence. It's about emotions. If they set up the fear of the catastrophic event, whatever the catastrophic event, capital C, capital E, the catastrophic event, whatever it is, they will tell you that their way of living is the answer. Lots of problems with that line of reasoning. Lots. Okay, hopefully you're seeing that today. What to do about cognitive dissonance, right? When you feel that that tension rise up in you when somebody disagrees with your narrative, your ideology, breathe. Okay, difficult truths are difficult because they're hard to accept. That's what makes them a difficult truth. Don't focus on the consequences. Okay, what if I, what if I were to give this a little bit of thought? What if I were to engage this way of thinking? Don't worry about that yet. Focus first on figuring out what the truth is. Read dissenting opinions because sometimes we think, well, what will people think if I switch sides? What will people think if I change my mind? Who will be my friend if I leave this group? Don't worry about any of that yet. Just focus on discovering both sides. Read both sides. Follow people on social media who are on the opposite side of what you believe. I always do this. Honestly, probably to prepare and defend myself against cultish ideologies because I've fallen for them before. I can usually articulate both sides. Why? Because I read and study them. And I'm not like, you know, using myself as an example necessarily. I'm just saying this has helped me. Expose yourself to both sides. Ask yourself questions on both sides. What are your questions? Where are the contradictions? Write them down. Force yourself to look at them. And then ask yourself, what are the reasonable positions of the opposition? Are they saying anything at all that's reasonable? Guess what? They are. They are. Very rarely is an ideology purely wrong. That's why I said very rarely is it purely right. There are elements of truth in all sides. If you don't want to be the victim of an ideology, you will know what they are on both sides. And then go slowly. Take in small amounts of information at a time. Maybe you can't flood your feed with the opposite side. The cognitive dissonance will be too much. Okay, follow one person. One person. And you're like, okay, I'm going to give this person a chance. And then call it a day. Chew on what you're learning. Okay, why? Because this is the opposite of what you did when you engaged in cultish ideology. You only flooded yourself with that narrative. So now start to listen to someone else. And you swallowed it hard. Why? Because it promised to take away your pain and protect you from the catastrophic event. So now this time, go slow. Give yourself permission to be in that process, which you've not been able to do before. Learn slowly, question, doubt, and then learn some more. There are three pathways out of cognitive dissonance. You can change your existing beliefs, you can add new information, or you can challenge and minimize the importance of your existing beliefs. So what does that mean? Changing existing beliefs, find out where your thinking has been faulty. If you have believed a fact, quote unquote, that you thought was true, but you find out that the research shows that it's not true, you have to change what you believe. You can change your mind based on new evidence. Change existing beliefs. 
Add new information. What does that mean? Seek out new sources. Find the people who disagree with you and learn their position. And if any of it seems true, you get to change existing beliefs. And then challenging and minimizing the importance of your existing beliefs. This means dismantling the catastrophic event. It means dealing with your fear. You can choose to live in fear. And you can choose to live out of fear. And if you choose to live out of fear, which is in safety, you will not be as susceptible to ideological thinking like this. Because they will not be able to convince you that that catastrophic event is right around the corner. How many times have you heard both sides, and I'm speaking to those of us in the United States, this is the most important election of our lives. Now, some of us may believe at some point, no, it is. It's really important. But can we take the edge off the catastrophe? Can we do that? Can we just keep our heads on straight? Can we breathe? Because what they want from you is reactivity. And why would you be reactive? Because they've convinced you that you should be afraid. You have this disease. Take this pill. Oh, we all run to the store and get it. This is the catastrophic event. You have to believe this to avoid the catastrophic event. Okay, we all do that. This is groupthink. It's all emotional. So that's how we get out of our cultish ideologies. Now, how do you combat cultish thinking in other people? Go slowly. It's going to take time. Why? Because there are layers and layers of emotions and pain and fears attached to these beliefs. You're not going to shake someone out of that with one conversation. So go slow. Number two, really hear them out. Learn their own rationale so well that you could repeat it back to them convincingly. You cannot combat information you do not master. Learn their stance. Read what they're reading. Can you send me any articles? Can you give me any, you know, input on on what you're, where you're getting your information? I have absolutely been guilty of just denying what someone gives me if I don't agree with it right at the outset. I have been guilty. I have not taken the time to research and understand what other people believe. And some of us don't even want to invest the time. But if you want to combat cultish ideological thinking in other people, this is how. And this is an important part. Third, validate their pain. Remember that this is at the root of their narrative. This is at the root of the insistence that the cultish belief is real. So agree with them that we'd all love a better world. That's true. We can agree that maybe this seems like a reasonable option given the information you've been given. And I agree, I validate that the pain you feel is real. That's real. We validate pain and then challenge irrational thoughts gently with evidence. Friends, cultish thinking is among us and it's dividing us. We are ideologically in battle lines. Us versus them. It's all nonsense. What's driving all of it? Fear. That's the real cult. The cult of fear. Well, I'm afraid if this party wins. Well, I'm afraid if you win. Well, I'm afraid if your ideology takes hold. Well, I'm afraid if your ideology takes hold. It's fear. We have to operate from a place that's reasonable, human, not governed by fear. So first we identify this in ourselves, do that self-work, and then in others, go slowly, gently into rational thought again. All right, let's pause there. That clip of David Koresh and we all remember this, if you were alive, the, the FBI raid, the fire. I mean, the way that the Waco, Texas thing ended was just absolutely a travesty on every level. But I want you to notice how his followers knew all the answers. They'd been trained in how to think. Ask yourself, have I been conditioned and trained to think as I do? What are my influences and why do I trust them? 
Because if you're free to ask and question and disagree and come to different conclusions and accept a little bit, but not a lot, you're probably not in a cultish ideology. But if you are afraid to make your thoughts known, if you can't challenge the narrative without feeling rejected and isolated, you may have some cultish ideologies that you're attached to. If you fear questioning what your group thinks, if you've never questioned why you believe what you believe, if you've settled for emotional answers that do not make sense, and if you've been silencing your common sense for fear of reprisal, it's time to evaluate, my friends. We have to reclaim our right and our responsibility to be thinking human beings. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this. My guess is there is someone in your life who you could listen to this podcast with and discuss. So please do it. Send me your thoughts at the podcast at vanessalondino.com on Instagram. My handle is at Vanessa underscore Londino underscore LPC. I'm on Twitter at Vanessa Londino and Facebook at Vanessa Londino LPC. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for sharing. Remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. That means working through cognitive dissonance. All right, till next time, this podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Landino and you just listened to the Vanessa Landino podcast.